And visitors, welcome. I'd like to say, if you do return, you may not get an airplane thrown your way. <laughs> Happy Independence Day weekend. Um, we as a church hope that you are able to celebrate the freedom we're blessed with in this country this weekend. And as Wood stated this morning, also to celebrate our freedom in Christ. This morning we are going to look at uh, God's majestic providence and work in the book of Esther, freeing his people. So if you'd like to follow along, we'll be starting in Esther chapter 1. Before we get started, would you please pray with me? Thank you, Lord. For this opportunity we have to worship you this morning. We have been praising you with our lips, Lord. May you be glorified. As we begin to praise you with our hearts and our ears and our mind, enable us, Lord, to receive your message from your word that we might go from here strengthened and encouraged, changed in our hearts, more towards you and glorifying you through doing your will. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. I forgot. I also wanted to say a special greetings and good morning and welcome to those that are uh, listening online and to say hello to our pastor and his family and that hopefully they're having a great family and vacation time together. So welcome, Pelachowski family. Enjoy the week and weekend. Um, the book of Esther takes place uh, just over 100 years after God's people were exiled out of Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And Esther chapter 1 starts out um, telling about the recent king, King Xerxes. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce his name. I've heard it pronounced that way in other ways as well. But for our brief overview of the book, there's four main characters, King Xerxes, Mordecai, Esther, and Haman. And God uses these four people in a very enjoyable, interesting way to free his people. Uh, the book place starts during the third year of King Xerxes' reign. And we're told that he reigns over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and that he ruled his empire from the fortress of Susa. During the third year of his reign, he threw a party, a celebration for his uh, military officers, nobles, princes, and the governing rulers over those 127 provinces. Uh, this party lasted 180 days. I, I, I would like to go to the party like this. There's a really enjoyable description of this party with the food and the lavished. Uh, there was no expense spared. Um, it was in the fortress of Susa. It's described as being beautiful. 
After the 180 days were over, King Xerxes, which I thought was very generous, threw a second party for everyone in the fortress of Susa, and it's described from the greatest to the very least. And uh, this party lasted seven days. Still, another party I'd really like to go to. Seven days. Um, in the Sunday school, when we, this last year, we recently went through this book, we kind of talk about birthday or Christmas and maybe how many times we celebrate Christmas each year with different families and get-togethers, and then birthdays. Usually there's maybe more than one birthday party, but can you imagine seven days? Yeah, that would be fun, and they can't imagine. During that seven-day celebration, the king called for his queen, and her name is Vashti, and she has a short role in this book, and there's a lot more details than what I'm going to go over. But he called for her to come and to present herself at the party he was hosting. And she was also at the same time hosting a banquet for the women that uh, were in the fortress of Susa and that worked under her. So she refused his invitation, and King Xerxes didn't like this. His advisors uh, helped him, and there's a lot more information in the book. I encourage you to read it. She is queen no longer. As chapter 2 starts, it says, After the king's anger had settled for a while, a while, his advisors recommended to him, Let us search your entire empire, 127 providences for a new queen. We will select women and put them through 12 months of beauty treatment and then present them to the king and the king would be able to pick a new queen. The king says, that sounds like a great idea. Sounds like the biggest beauty pageant possible. By now, in the middle of chapter 2, we learn about a new character. Mordecai. He was an Israelite Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin whose family was exiled from Jerusalem. He was employed at the fortress of Susa. He is described throughout the book as being a very loving, patient man, a family man, a man of good character with good choices, a man that chose God over human influence. Uh, Mordecai has a very young cousin named Esther, Esther's parents passed away when Esther was very young. Mordecai adopted Esther and raised Esther as his very own with his own children. Esther, at this stage, is very beautiful, described as beautiful, and she is chosen to be in the king's beauty contest. Since Mordecai works in the fortress of Susa, he is able to give messages and communicate back and forth with Esther. We're told one of the things that Mordecai suggests to Esther is to not release her nationality, that she is of Jewish heritage. 
So uh, she is placed in the 12 months of beauty treatment. There's more descriptions on this. The attendants that were uh, giving the beauty treatments to all the women who were chosen across the empire, they were taken by Esther, not only her beauty, but her character and her person. And they uh, showed her special favor. Well, it's no surprise, at the end of the 12 months, the king previewed them all, and Esther is chosen as queen. Uh, we start um, at, the, at the end of chapter 2. It shows that, tells us that Mordecai, as he's working at the fortress, he hears the attendants of the king's door making a plan to kill the king. The, the, the two attendants that guard the king's bedroom door are planning to assassinate the king. Mordecai gives word to Esther. Esther gives word to the official police of the fortress, and it's uncovered that this was an assassination plot, and Mordecai is credited with giving this information. And it's, it's recorded in the king's history books. Um, so then by chapter 3, we're told sometime later, and here we get another character, our last character, a man not by, by the name of Haman. And as you read the book and then read about the uh, details and character of each person, he was somebody who was hungry for power, a political person who wanted to control things, and that's where he found his identity. And we find out he didn't care who he stepped on to receive power. And by chapter 3, he is promoted in the kingdom to be second in command next to King Xerxes. And he somehow, and it says that the king made this a rule, that when he enters and leaves, exits the uh, fortress of Susa, that everyone present should bow to respect Haman. Well, Mordecai worked in the fortress, and Mordecai refused to bow. The other attendants strive to talk to Mordecai. What are you doing? This would be uh, uh, against the law. You can be punished. You could be thrown in prison. And uh, Mordecai tells them, I will not bow for I am of Jewish heritage. This made Haman very, very angry. And uh, he was powerful, important. He saw himself as important. He was full of pride. And when somebody who was a measly employee at the Fortress of Susa would not bow to him, his anger went through the roof. So Haman... Chapter 3, verse 6, decides to take his hanger not only out on just Mordecai, but when he learns that Mordecai is Jewish, he decides to take his anger out on the entire Jewish people living in the empire. Haman deceptively tricks King Xerxes and tells the king, there is a certain people living in your empire that do not follow your, our rules. They have their own set of rules. They do things on a different accord. And Haman even offers to give the king a lot of money 
to make a decree, to allow him to make a decree to extinguish these people. Don't know the details. It would be interesting to see the uh, instant replay or to see this on actual film. I get the impression King Xerxes was not very worried or cared. He said, well, this is my guy that's second in command. He's got something he's got to say about. And the king says, here is my signet ring. Do whatever you want. Do what you see fit. I don't want to worry about it. And uh, he gives him the ring to make a royal decree. And as we learn when we read the book, when, the, when, a, when a royal decree or law is made with the king's signet ring, it cannot be revoked. So Haman schemes to make a plan by casting the lots that on April 17th, he sent the law out that stated... On March 7th, the following year, every Jewish person, young, old, male, female, child, would be executed, killed. And anyone who killed them would acquire their property. So if a a person living within the empire was not Jewish and their neighbor was Jewish, and they annihilated their family, they would acquire everything they had. And uh, this sent a wave of anguish and sadness throughout the Jewish people living throughout the empire. The Jewish people had been here 100 years by now, and I imagine that there was some racial tension with the Babylonians Ethiopians, the Indians that had been living there longer. And there may have been resentment and anger from the past. They may have noticed and realized them as God's people. They may have seen them prosper because of being God's people under exile, and that may have made them bitter. So the Jewish people were thrown in sadness. Most of them uh, wore burlap and ashes and cried aloud, and Mordecai did the same. He put on uh, burlap and rubbed ashes all over his body, going throughout the city, crying and wailing. And that is in starting in chapter 4. When Esther learned of Mordecai's sadness, she had no idea what was going on. She didn't know about the new royal decree. And she had sent her messenger with clothes to Mordecai so that Mordecai could change and be cleaned up. Mordecai then sent messages back and forth to Esther at this point to communicate and let Esther know about the decree. And Mordecai charged her, you need to go to the king. You need to talk to the king about this decree. And Esther's response to Mordecai was, I haven't been called by the king for some time. And if I go to the king without being called, the king can execute me. I would be committing suicide. If the king uh, wanted to speak to me, he would summons me. But if I went on my own, I would probably be executed unless it's described, unless the king lowered his golden scepter and gave forgiveness, and allowed the person who just entered the court 
to come and speak to the king. Chapter 4, verse 13, is Mordecai's reply to Esther. And it's on the board. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself if that the king's in the, in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at a time like this, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. With that charge to Esther in these verses, she responds, tell all our people to fast for me for three days. I will do as you have asked. And she says in verse 16, if I must die, I will die. Esther is now willing to spare her life for the opportunity to save her people. This verse in the commentaries, and as you study the book and read any literature about the book, it's described as a key verse of the book. And um, the first time I heard the verse, I was very encouraged. I believe it's a verse that speaks to every one of us on a personal level for each time and season in our life. For such a time as this, you are here. God can use you in your circles, in your relationships, in your family for such a time as this. This verse is a pivotal verse that convicts me to look closer to the understanding of God and what His will is. This verse is a verse that helps me stop and look outside of my little box at the bigger picture, what God's plan and picture is. This verse reminds me of a few other verses that I want to spend just a few minutes sharing, and we'll get back to Esther. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, at the end of the book, Joseph, if you remember the story of Joseph, was sold to slavery by his brothers. Then, out of slavery, he was given a good position in Potiphar's house, and then somebody lied about him, and he went back to prison for quite a while, and then he was called to the king as someone who could interpret dreams. And God used Joseph in his life to save the Israelites from famine. Joseph's brothers returned, Joseph's fathers returned, and at that time his family came to Egypt to live with him. And at this time Joseph is now very powerful working under the Pharaoh. Joseph's father passed away. Joseph's brothers 
were scared that the only reason his life was spared, their lives were spared for treating Joseph so terribly was because their father was alive. After Joseph passed away, his brothers came to Joseph. And in Genesis 50, verse 19, Joseph speaks to his brothers. Thank you, Jim. We have that on the screen. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. This is another verse that I think each one of us, if we focus on long enough, we see evil going on all around us and how God can use that for his good and his purpose. Next week, we're so blessed to start VBS, and these young children in this community are impacted and swarmed with evil nonstop. And they're going to see the contrast, Lord willing, through the volunteers and the workers and the message that we give to them. And God would be using it for good, Lord willing. Man meant for harm, God can mean for good. Another verse and passage that reminds me very much of at such a time as this. In Daniel when the exiles were first taken to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar built a huge golden statue and commanded everyone to bow down to it. And as you probably very well remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the statue. They were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar questioned them and ordered them and gave them one more chance. If you do not bow down to the statue, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace and question them. And their response to King Nebuchadnezzar is found in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And it reads, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These verses state to me that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with complete conviction were seeing God as the ultimate authority. They gave respect to God as the ultimate authority. They rested their mind, their heart, their soul, rested in God as the ultimate authority. Though around them, at their place in time, 
for such a time as this for them, the governing rulers were ordering them to bow down to a golden statue. Their heart rested in God as their ultimate authority. One more verse I'd like to share that reminds me so much of the, of the charge that Mordecai gave Esther. For who knows, at such a time as this, you've been placed Queen Esther to possibly save your people. In Samuel, the first king of Israel was Saul. The first human king of Israel was Saul. Saul disappointed God and sinned against God. And God chose the second king, as we know to be David. And God sent Samuel to anoint David as the new king. When Samuel came to David's father's house, Jesse, to anoint the new king, we're told that Jesse had many sons, and when he met there, he saw the first son and thought to himself, oh, surely, this is it. He's big, he's tall, he's strong. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, we read, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man is constantly looking, mankind is constantly finding their worth on the outward appearance, the character of who they are on their outward appearance. God is looking at the heart. These verses, again, remind me and help me understand slightly God's point of view For such a time as this, why I'm here and how to serve him and do his will. Man meant for harm, God used for good. God is the ultimate authority. Man is concerned with the outward appearance. God is concerned with the heart. Esther's message back to Mordecai. Fast for me for three days, and I will do as you ask. If I must die, I must die. Esther approaches the king in chapter 5. I'm sure, I can only imagine, she was nervous and scared. This might be her last moments on life. And as we know from reading... The king extends his golden scepter and asks her to come forward. He graciously greets her and tells her, Ask Esther whatever you wish, and I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Well, if I was asked this request from a powerful king who is a ruler over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia, I probably would ask for something selfish. Esther asked for a simple request that she has a king and Haman for a special banquet meal together later that day. 
And the king says, yes, absolutely. They go to that banquet, and it is just Queen Esther, King Xerxes, and Haman. And the king says, Esther, ask for whatever you wish. Whatever it is, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Queen Esther says, if it pleases the king, would you please return tomorrow for another banquet with you and Haman? And at this time, I will make my present, uh, request known to you, King Xerxes. King Xerxes says, yes, absolutely. Haman leaves this banquet a very, very happy man. He is now uh, feeling powerful. He finds his identity in this earthly power. He feels like the uh, finite kingdom is what gives him his self-worth and his power within the kingdom. He leaves this banquet feeling so special that he was invited by the queen to have a special lunch. Not only this day, but he's invited the next day to have another special lunch with the queen and King Xerxes. So he leaves the fortress of Susa extremely happy. And as he leaves, he looks around and everybody's bowing, except for one. Mordecai does not bow to him. And immediately the king's prideful joy and selfishness turns to hate and anger and, and frustration. And evil fills his heart. Haman goes home and starts talking to his wife and his friends and his advisors at his house. And they come up with an evil plan to, you know, Haman, now that you're so important and you've had a special lunch with just the king and the queen, and you're going to go back tomorrow for a special lunch, surely you can just go ask the king, hey, king, may I please execute this man, Mordecai? He does not bow to me. Haman thinks this is a good plan. His wife and advisors say, build a gallows pole in our backyard. And tomorrow afternoon, after your banquet, you can come home and execute Mordecai and all your, all your worries and troubles will be gone. Haman thinks this is a fantastic idea. Possibly goes to bed happy. King Xerxes that evening could not sleep. He asked his attendants to read the history books to him. And um, that's a funny thing. I don't know if you ever have trouble sleeping. I uh, had this conversation with a brother in the Lord the other day. You know, it's a good time when you're having trouble sleeping. Pick up God's word and start reading because Satan doesn't want you to read it. I thought that was kind of fun and funny. But if we read a boring book, that puts us right to sleep. If we sometimes listen to something and somebody's talking on and on, that puts us to sleep. So I'm, I'm wondering if King Xerxes wanted his history books read to him to help put him to sleep. As these books were being read to him, he hears about Mordecai and the plan of assassination on his life and that Mordecai was credited for learning about the two that were planning to assassinate the king. The king asks the, advisor, the attendant reading, 
Has anything done been done to credit Mordecai for saving my life? And the attendant says, no, no reward has been given to Mordecai. So King Xerxes is thinking about this and doesn't say if he goes to sleep or not. Haman wakes up the next morning, excited to get to the fortress, excited to ask the king, king, can I kill this Jewish man, Mordecai? And the king sees Haman coming in. And right away asked Haman, Haman, what should the king do to honor the man he wants to value the most? Haman, puffed up, puffed up with pride, thinks it's him and goes on an elaborate stretch. King, you should put your royal jewelry on this man. You should dress this man in your royal robes. You should put this man on your royal horse and have somebody lead this horse throughout the fortress of Susa, shouting, this is what the king does to the man he wants to honor the most. King Xerxes replies to Haman, Haman, that is a fantastic idea. At once, I need you to do this for Mordecai. I can only imagine Haman's heart sinking. The joy and pride he had thinking about the plan to ask Xerxes to kill Mordecai is gone. The joy and pride he had thinking that King Xerxes now wants to honor me and I'm going to ride around his royal horse wearing his clothes and jewelry, that's gone. But now he is humiliated by being the one to carry Mordecai around, shouting, this is what the king does to the man he wants to honor the most. After he had finished doing this, we're told he stopped by his family's house, his wife's house, to tell them what happened. His wife and his advisors told him, obviously, your plan now will fail. If you continue to pursue this, it may be fatal for you. Haman receives wise counsel. Chapter 7, the second banquet is hosted. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, what is it that you would like? Ask anything, up to half the kingdom, and it's yours. Esther pleads for her life and the life of these people. King Xerxes stands up with anger. Who would want to kill you, my queen? Queen Esther says, this evil man, Haman, has deceptively made a plot to kill me and my people. The king is furious with anger. It's described that he gets up pacing. Haman, now realizing what his wife and advisor said, is coming to a, a hold. He falls at Esther's feet, begging for his life to be spared. The king returns, we're told, sees, witnesses this, and has even more anger. The attendants say, Haman built 
a gallows pole in his backyard to kill Mordecai. King Xerxes says, excellent, hang Haman on it immediately. Haman's power is removed. Chapter 8, we learn that King Xerxes puts Mordecai in a higher position of power and gives Queen Esther and Mordecai his signet ring to make a, a new law. And he reminds them that the old law of the Jewish people being annihilated on March 7th cannot be revoked, but gives them authority to make a new law. So they do that the, the decree dictates in the law that the Jews in, in every city throughout the 127 provinces would be allowed to unite and to, vit, to defend themselves against their enemies and that they would have the ability to acquire whatever property or possessions from, the, from their enemies. So on chapter 9... On March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. The enemies of the Jewish people were hopeful that they could band together and destroy the Jewish people. But they were defeated. We learned that the nobles, the high officers, the governors, and the royal officials ended up helping the Jewish people. They helped them for fear of Mordecai. Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace higher and higher. His fame had spread out throughout the empire, and he became very powerful. He used his power to do good. Before the day was over, on March 7th, Esther came to the king one more time for a request. And she asked, for a second day that the Jews may fight against their enemy under these rules and regulations that they would be allowed to unite, band together, and fight against their enemy. And the king granted that request, and we're told that more than 75,000 enemies of the Jewish people died between those days. Mordecai calls for the Jewish people to celebrate those two days, with feasting and gladness, with gift-giving to each other and giving presents to the poor, very much like our independence. And this celebration is called the celebration of Purim that the Jewish people still celebrate. God used Mordecai, Esther, King Xerxes, and Haman in his providence, to free his people. Chapter 10 closes with three short verses. Mordecai is made prime minister. He has authority next to that of the king, and he uses his authority for good. The account of Esther and for such a time as this to stand up to authority for the opportunity of saving God's people very much is parallel to Jesus. He came 
as a, to earth to serve us and to be our sacrifice. He died on the cross and remained buried for three days. He rose again to save us from our sins. When we believe in him with our heart, we have a newness of life and we experience freedom from slavery to sin. We have much to celebrate this Independence Day. Not only the blessing to live in a free country, but the blessing of our freedom from sin and our freedom in Him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, 